Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone, I am here with Yenshui Cao. Yenshui is a senior research team lead at Borealis AI. Yenshui, welcome to the Twimmel AI podcast. Thank you for having me, Sam. Awesome. I am really looking forward to digging into our conversation. We'll be talking about Turing, which is a recent project that you've been working on that does text to SQL. But to get us started, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in machine learning. All right. So I did my undergrad at the University of Toronto in computer science and uh, math and stats. And I took a number of AI courses during undergrad, and that gave me the opportunity to work in the computer vision lab uh, run by David Fleet at U of T. So I did uh, two summer research projects there and uh, afterward went on to do my PhD with David, co-supervised by Aaron Hertzman, and did my PhD in Gaussian processes, not in computer vision. So uh, Gaussian processes is this class of uh, Bayesian non-parametric models that uh, learn very quickly from small number of data points. And my work was focusing on scaling the compute aspect of uh, GP. and. Uh, on the side, I also worked a little bit on adversarial robustness of models. So this was the time when people just found out that you can actually apply this uh, imperceivable perturbation to images and then change the class labels. Mm-hmm. So we thought that, uh, hey, can you change more than just class label? Can you actually change the features to make the features like another image completely, not just a change the label? And surprisingly, it turns out actually you can. You can actually take a picture of me and then apply a perturbation change the feature of me to look like feature of a car, for example. Not just any car, but a particular car of a particular color in that pose, etc. So that was um, very surprising at the time. But we thought that this com- adversarial robustness issue is going to be solved very quickly. Turns out... <laughs> It cannot be more <laughs> further from truth. Things still unsolve the problem. Do you still follow that space? Not super closely, but uh, it still motivates uh, a lot of things that uh, I do. Especially um, later, uh, after I joined Borealis, I, I look at uh, that literature and people found out that not only you can do this on vision, you can do this on NLP as well. And obviously there, the perturbation is not imperceptible change to pixels, but you add some extra text. And also you can do this in the physical world, apply some patches to images that are not changing pixels, but some patterns that people don't pay attention to. And they're actually very hard to get rid of. So what that tells is um, this old theoretical approach of uh, studying and understanding this uh, adversarial tax, we're not actually capturing what's really under the hood. Like these People were considering the adversarial attacks with like uh, some sort of uh, perturbation within a ball centered at the image and uh, look at the robustness model that way. But that clearly doesn't capture all the other ones. And uh, fundamentally, what it looks like is um, what the mo- model, how the model represents the data, represents the, the world, is different from human, from people's representation. And yeah. they, they're not aligned. And uh, 
It looks like their models are picking up on sort of a shortcuts or spirit correlations or other type of uh, associations that uh, we don't use. And, and fundamentally, it looks like that's the problem. And, and it looks like one has to really go beyond pattern matching to really to be able to to get to the root of this problem. So to look at uh, you know model that can reason that can try to discover the the this, the type of uh, relationship that uh, uh, people use uh, in recognizing, understanding, and reasoning. So that was that was my thought at at the time, and I think it was also thinking shared uh, by lots of people in the field, and uh, so that led me to work on NLP because um, NLP is a lot closer to reasoning. I felt. Because language is already a model of the world. Yeah, also because Boras is part of uh, Real Bank Canada. It's, uh, uh, there's a lot of potential application of uh, text uh, of NLP uh, inside a bank. So but before we dive in, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about Borealis and the charter. You mentioned that Borealis is a part of RBC now. What's the overall focus of the organization? Yeah, so Boras was actually has always been part of RBC. Was uh, started as a department of RBC. Okay, and the goal now is to build technology to deliver value to the bank and also advance science. So we do a combination of uh, product work and uh, fundamental research, and we publish a lot of our fundamental research. Mm-hmm. So. Tell us a little bit about Turing and the motivation for it. How did the project get started? Right. So Turing is this uh, natural language database interface. It's a demo of a natural language database interface that we built. And it's uh, really just putting a lot of our work on semantic parsing this space together in this academic demo. So natural language database interface, the uh, from an application perspective, the uh, the potential use is to allow uh, non-technical users to interact with structured data set because there's a lot of insight in there and uh, you know we want to give the opportunity for non-technical users to to get those insights and from a um, research perspective it's a, a very challenging natural language processing problem because um, the underlying problem is you have to parse question asked in English or any other natural language and convert to SQL. And uh, we all know natural language is ambiguous. Machine language is unambiguous. So you have to resolve all the ambiguity in order to parse correctly. Furthermore, what's different from something like convert to Python or other programming language is um, the mapping from questions to SQL is underspecified if you don't know the schema. Uh, it really depends on what is the structure of schema. And so, so model has to really learn how to reason using it, and in order to resolve all the ambiguity and, and correctly predict the, the SQL. And uh, lastly, this train the model on some domain. You don't want to just work on this domain. You want to work on domains and databases that you never seen before. So that's the cross-domain, cross-database part of it, and, and that is uh, very, very challenging because it's a completely different distribution once you move to a different. Uh, domain or schema. Mm-hmm. The announcement of this project, so we're talking about Turing shortly after the release of OpenAI's Codex. And so I imagine as you're talking to people about it now, that's a 
a correlation that folks make because that project is also focused on code generation. I'm curious if you might compare and contrast the different projects and maybe the complexity of the the challenge or you know different aspects that would help us understand how they might be similar or not. Right. So first of all, Codex, uh, I saw the demos and the demos are really amazing and impressive. I think if you look at the, where it's uh, applied, it's focusing on programming language like Python, JavaScript, and uh, all this uh, language where you can find a lot of uh, publicly available training data, like you know on, on GitHub and, and other sources. I think they're trained on, on, on uh, code from GitHub. So the availability of data is, is a one major difference. When you try to do SQL, as I said earlier, you really have to know the schema, right? There's not a lot of training data for SQL publicly available. Like people don't post their schema <laughs> online generally. Mm-hmm. So the amount of data is, is uh, very, very small that can be used for, e- even for like monolingual SQL, you can't find a, a ton of it for training purpose. So that is, uh, I would say like one major difference. So that's also why Turing is an academic demo that we built, whereas uh, Codex, obviously, with the lot more data, the model is uh, is fairly good, and uh, you can build a product out of it. Okay. You mentioned earlier that one of the elements of this project is kind of reasoning and reasoning on, on text, and that that's a fundamental aspect that allows you to transform natural language to SQL. Can you talk a little bit more about the role of reasoning in this problem? Right, so so one of the aspects is is what I mentioned earlier, like it's underspecified. And uh, it's underspecified due to you have to really leverage schema. And the other part is uh, you have to really have uh, common sense. Uh, a, A lot of times, for example, if I say, which cities have the most number of employees under 30. Under 30, that refers to age of employee. Assume that I have a scheme, a table with age column. It's never mentioned explicitly, but the model has to learn to uh, that under 30 refers to age and have to make that association. So that's common sense. And reasoning using schema, an example is uh, if uh, there's textual evidence for two of the tables, but these two tables are unrelated to each other, and there's no foreign key links. And uh, the model really has to look at how the schemas link together, and you know the relationship of elements in order to infer that, hey, maybe there's a third table that I need to bring in in order to produce the correct SQL. So all of this is an example where something is, is missing, it's causing it to be ambiguous. And the reasoning filling in this missing information allow the model to deconfound the relationship. Otherwise, if, if the information is not there and the model can just pick up, uh, you know, on spherics correlations, shortcuts that makes uh, learning possible during training, which of course doesn't generalize, especially on a task like this where you try to generalize to a new domain, a new schema and uh, with very small amount of data. Mm-hmm. And how is reasoning implemented in the model? Is it, is it something that's primarily done at training time and at inference time, it's a single step, a single step inference, or is it more something that's done at inference time where you're going through multiple 
steps to try to reason about a particular query? Right. So there's few elements in the model that uh, can that express some structural prior about uh, the problem that uh, performs some form of reasoning. One is on the you know it's a overall it's a it's an encoder decoder type of architecture. On the decoder side, the decoder actually knows the grammar of SQL and it's uh, baked into the the decoder knows has some sort of knowledge that we designed into the. Uh, into the model and then leverage the grammar of sequels to, to figure out uh, at this step, what are the legal things that can be produced? And that allows us to prune search space during inference and during training. And it learns what are the things that are likely. And on, on the encoder side, it's, uh, the model is basically a transformer, but uh, a special type of transformer called the relational aware transformers and can consider the different relations of uh, schema elements and uh, as well as uh, association between the question tokens with uh, the elements in the schema, like a table name, column name. And you can give something prior knowledge about this foreign key relationship and uh, some initial evidence about uh, which token in the question is likely to be linked to which column. And then during training, the model learns to basically clean up this sort of relationship. And in, at, during inference, it can basically starting from an initial guess and then try to refine uh, the potential link and then re- remove some of the ambiguities. Mm-hmm. It's still some, uh, I would say it's still a rough form of uh, reasoning. It's uh, obviously it doesn't capture all the different type of things that we wanted to, to potentially do, but uh, it already uh, make a big, big difference. Okay. You talked about how you're part of what makes the model work is that you're providing information to the transformer during training. Can you talk about how the data is prepared and generated to train the model? Right. So during training, basically the model considers both questions and the schema. And so the model is actually a consists of a pre-trained deep transformer like a Roberta. And on top of it, it has some extra fresh layer of uh, relational aware transformer layers. And the relational aware transformer layers encode some prior knowledge um, between elements of uh, columns, relations, and uh, words and words in the questions and words in the, uh, the column in the table, for example. If, for instance, if we see a column in the questions, if we see a mention of a, a column of the name in the questions, it, it provides some initial evidence, and so it has a link there. And uh, during training, basically, the model tries to maximize the, uh, the correct prediction. And during that process, it can learn to adjust the weight and uh, uh, remove some of the, the noisy initial links. So the relational layers aren't trained. Those are built as priors and then added to the transformer? They, they are trained. So everything is oh, trained. In okay. Trend. And uh, the relational layers, they are able to take... So maybe let me take a step back. But are they trained separately from the... No, together. Transformer? Okay. Uh, everything is trained together end to end. So maybe let me take a step back. So transformers generally, like, they can encode, basically, they, they, they encode the fully connected graph, right? They, it looks mm-hmm. like... If you ignore the position embedding, it looks like it, it considers the full sentence as... a as a fully connected graph, it's every word associated with every word. And if you take a schema, 
and uh, say that you flatten the schema into like a, just a long string like a question and put it together with the with the question and it looks consider everything as a fully connected graph mm-hmm. uh, what relation where transformer does is uh, as some additional prior information saying that beside this fully connected knowledge about you know everything could potentially be related to everything else we have this knowledge of special links like foreign foreign key relations and if we see mention of a car in the question and uh, there's a column uh, called a car type it's more likely that these two are related so it uh, bakes this uh, as this additional inductive bias into the model and later on during training it can refine what uh, the initial given uh, evidence into the try to infer what is truly there okay i think that i think that's consistent with what i thought but i'm still not clear on the where does the initial inductive bias come from is that right. trained separately or is that baked in as kind of an engineering process so the foreign key relations that's known from the schema Mm-hmm. And uh, the initial uh, link that's uh, given by some heuristics. So th- there's some uh, a little bit of engineering there. Okay. But even if the schema linking missed some of the initial relations, it's able to 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 uh, pick those uh, up in training. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And so then the the entire model is kind of trained end to end, starting with those biases. And what are and the training data set consists of. A set of questions that are appended concatenated with schema information? Yes, in a way. There's uh, more information, like there's uh, information about uh, the type of columns that can be used in there. But uh, conceptually, you can think of this as uh, just a graph that the model looks at. So there's uh, essentially question, natural language queries, plus some features related to the the database essentially yeah is that yeah. right and there's a kind of a label that is the query that you want returned is it the yeah. query is it the query that you want to execute or the results of the query against the database it's the uh, query that you want to execute okay okay so this system we we trained it on this uh, public benchmark dataset called spider it's a very small data set for, uh, from a deep learning standpoint, it, but because collecting data for this generally is pretty hard. Spider is the de facto benchmark data set for this problem. Mm-hmm. It has 200 different databases, but uh, okay. overall just uh, a little bit over 5,000 queries. So it's oh, wow. uh, it's very small data problem, uh, yet you have to learn to generalize to completely new unseen domains. Mm-hmm. And would it be practical, would you think, to train not on the query that you want, but on the resulting data so that you can get the same data with many different queries in the database? Some will be more optimal than others. There's, you might want to let the network figure that out. Yeah, so, so there are other works in this space that actually looks at uh, use execution result. So, okay. so it's possible, though you have to either change how your model works. So your model still has to produce this discrete objects that uh, executes. And so you either have to change that to, to some sort of differentiable structure, mm-hmm. or you have to use uh, reinforcement learning or other related techniques to be able to do credit assignments through that. Okay. Yeah, so, so it's possible other people have explored 
on this problem, it, it doesn't uh, work super well generally. But we are we we have explored combining with our techniques and the denotation, the execution result, to help uh, uh, perform data augmentation afterward, and that improves performance. So in a way, yes, we are uh, we have additional steps that can leverage the execution result. Okay. You mentioned a couple of things. One, that the data set is fundamentally a small data set. You just mentioned data augmentation is one possible way to address that. Are there other things that you have done in this project to kind of optimize the transformer model around the small data set problem? Yeah, so actually one of the key differences in our approach, so a lot of things that I mentioned previously was techniques that were already invented in the, in the field. So, so relational wear transformer, we didn't invite, invent that. But we found out is uh, if you put a very deep relational transformer, you can't train it very well. The models, even if it has ability to perform some sort of form of reasoning, if you can't train it, then it's no use. So, so we found a, a way to train deep transformers in a very on small data set in a stable fashion. So this is very um, counter to what people used to believe. Like uh, you have to train deep transformers, you have to have large data set. Uh, yeah. With this technique that we we came out with, published at ACL this year, it's possible to train it uh, in a stable fashion on small data set. And, and so, what are the key elements of doing that? Right. So, in a nutshell, it's a better way to initialize these models. Okay. And. It also builds on prior works that uh, looks at the, you know initializing deep transformer models, and we make the big difference here is uh, we make it possible to actually add these layers on top of pre-trained and then train everything together. So previous techniques that improve stability of this transformer, they were only considering training from scratch. But when you train on on small data set, you want to leverage pre-trained. You don't want to train a fresh transformer from scratch completely. Mm-hmm. But the previous techniques just doesn't work when you have put the new layers on top of a pre-trained bird or Roberta. And in the nutshell, well, how this works is um, it turns out the problem with deep transformer with transformer training generally is the layer norm layer. And uh, previous work have found out that if you can remove that somehow and uh, still make training stable, the performance is much better. And training transformer generally requires to like have layer norm, large batch size, and learning rate warm up. And it turns out you want to remove layer norm, don't do warm up, and here you know on small data set you have to use small batch size. So we make all you know these three possible. Mm-hmm. And when you said you make all those three possible, how do you do that? Right. So the Basically, in a nutshell, the idea is you want to. There are certain parameters that in, that are in the transformer, either re- vanilla transformer or relational aware transformers. You want to during initialization, you want to scale them by a factor that's proportional to the depth. And in the paper, we have uh, some derivation show exactly what that scale factor is. Uh, it turns out when you do this on top of a pre-trained model, that scale factor uh, needs to be data dependent. So our method is called the DT fix up, data dependent transformer fixed update initialization. Okay. So when you do that, the model is initialized to basically in a stable regime uh, for optimization with uh, Atom 
and uh, it doesn't oscillate, which is the typical problem with uh, that uh, learning rate warm-up and layer norm try to fix, but uh, fails at uh, doing. Mm-hmm. So, so when you do all of this together, training is stable since the beginning, and you can train your deep transformer. We can The maximum we trained was 48 layers on this small data set mm-hmm. with very small batch size. And the overall data set is, is just uh, 5,000 uh, less than, you know, for training is less than 5,000 queries. So you can't use lar- very large batch size. So instead of the learning rate warm up and the layer norm and the large batch size, you kind of substitute that with data aware initialization that sounds like it does a pass on the data and then scales the parameters and sets your initial weights. And then you get a stable result from the, your training. Yeah. yeah. And um, what's amazing is um, once you are able to train uh, this in a stable fashion, the transformer plus relational wear transformer can already perform a lot of the, the reasoning. It, the improvement on these hard cases is, 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 uh, is huge. It's, um, so it turns out, so, so what's uh, the learning here is um, it's already, this model can already do some form of reasoning like this. It's just we're not able to train them on this uh, in a stable fashion. Mm-hmm. And with the initialization approach and its data dependencies, did you find that it was broadly applicable to a variety of data sets or is it very specific to the benchmark data sets that you use or other mm-hmm. characteristics of the data set? Right. So we also tried this on a completely different problem, but that also requires uh, reasoning. So, so a problem for logical reading comprehension. Mm-hmm. So we actually did this after we made the, all this working on the semantic parsing problem, took that data set, and uh, it's also a very small and very hard problem. And we just applied the technique and uh, got uh, very, very good results. Like uh, without any special engineering on, the, on that task, we got uh, okay. near state of art on that problem as well. So generally, yeah, it uh, looks like it's... Um, Obviously, if, if your data set is already huge, then you can use large batch size, and mm-hmm. that, that, that makes training much more stable. But when you have small data set, you can't, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. And were the data sets, the, the benchmark data set that you use, was that a multilingual data set, or is it monolingual? And what kind of support for multilingual do you have? These, these problems are just uh, English, like the reading comprehension and uh, semantic parsing. But yeah, we, for, for semantic parsing, there is another data set, but, but, there, but, but there's no cross-language, at, at least in the, the, the popular ones for cross-database semantic parsing. There's not a simultaneous cross-database and cross-language. Mm-hmm. Is multilingual something that you're looking at or interested in? Yeah, I think it's a very challenging problem. At the moment, we're not uh, studying this, this problem. Because there, there are other like unresolved challenges. In, in. Uh, let's talk a little bit about those. What are the kind of the big challenges or next steps with this work? Right. So generally, um, data. If you want to continue to improve the accuracy, data is a problem. How to perform data augmentation in this space? That's a that's a fundamental blocker, and we are looking at uh, how to how to do that. And it sounds like you did a bit of data augmentation already, right? 
Yes, actually, we we um, so for the non-academic research part of this project, we actually done a lot of data augmentation okay. to make something like this work. But it's it's challenging. So other people who have done this, their their technique is um, to basically engineer some sort of uh, grammar that can simultaneously produce SQL query and uh, uh, language. natural language. Mm-hmm. But it's it's very very tedious hard task to do, and we we actually also tried it, and that was also our first intuition when it comes to do data augmentation in this. Uh, um, but to actually engineer this grammar to produce questions that are very natural, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's very very tough. So so how to do data augmentation without uh, going through <laughs> and engineer a, a generative model for this? Basically, <laughs> it's uh, it, it's something that we're looking into. And we have some work in progress. It's not yet released, but that allows us to leverage knowledge from pre-trained model to actually improve the effectiveness of data augmentation. Mm-hmm. And before we go to the, the next challenge, the data augmentation conversation kind of sparked a question around the complexity of the questions and the queries. Can you kind of speak to that and characterize the, the level of complexity that, that Turing is able to, to deal with? Yeah, so in terms of query that it can produce, it can produce um, queries that involve joins, uh, multiple joins, uh, subqueries. Um, so sometimes you have questions that are in English, very benign, very simple. Like this is not an example that are actually on spider, but, but you know, say like, what's the average return of all the stocks that performed above market average? Mm-hmm. So, so there's compositionality there. And, uh, Market average refer to like actually well depending on the structure of your schema will will require you to first compute that number by doing some sort of some sort of uh, averaging aggregation and uh, plug it into the top level query and Turing is able to to do things like this and uh, also obviously it's also able to handle some of the other extreme like if you write questions in very verbosely with lots of different conditions. And uh, it can handle a lot of that as well. Now, obviously, you know, it, it, it will have mistakes. It, it definitely is not uh, yet a system that is quite a level of accuracy that's useful uh, directly as uh, if you want to just trust the result, execution result 100%. It, it, it's not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. That's also why, like, for the Turing demo, we built in some system in presenting the end result to help user really make sense of the result and try to judge for themselves whether it's what they want. So what we do is um, Turing is able to produce multiple hypotheses during its generation, and we explain the hypotheses back to the user in natural language, and we highlight the difference across the different hypotheses. And then they can see for themselves, okay, the difference between these three is Instead of this column, we mentioned that column. And here, instead of this value, it's using some other value. Or maybe the overall just structure logic is completely different. Mm-hmm. And then they can see for themselves which one corresponds to their intention originally and can choose that. Now, that explainability model sounds like its own research project. Is that something you worked on internally? Or is that kind of an off-the-shelf technique that you're able it's, to... It's uh, our, our own work. Okay. So we had a number of different publications at ACL this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so the work on optimizing deeper transformers, that's one 
paper and uh, the Turing demo paper actually consists of the core semantic parser, the component that uh, tries to fill in the value after you get the SQL sketch, and as well as the explanation module. And the explanation module here, it's kind of different from normal natural language generation where you, for at least for research, there's a lot of uh, neural language generation. Mm-hmm. Here we actually don't explicitly don't want neural language generation because we want uh, the difference across the hypothesis to be only due to the hypothesis themselves, not the natural language generation part. Mm-hmm. So we have a very computer linguistics type of uh, grammar-based model that can take the SQL and compositionally produce the natural language explanation step by step. And the only difference there is due to the difference in the SQL. Mm-hmm. And just to make sure I understand that, so you're the explainer is explaining the result, not the process for obtaining the result. Correct. Uh, is that an interesting nuance? It doesn't sound quite like not wanting to do generation, but it it, it sounds like I'm I'm wondering if there's something missing in not trying to explain the process that won't capture for the end user, what the model may have done to get to the result. Uh, but I don't, I, you know, does it even matter? Uh, well, we think it doesn't. We think because okay. at the end, normally, you know, users just care about the final answer, right? So you, mm-hmm. you can think of SQL as just some sort of uh, intermediate representation. But this is an intermediate representation that actually could potentially be aligned with how humans think about the, the problem. This goes back to what I mentioned at the beginning, like uh, the re- machine's representation of the data of the domain of the world, how can we make that align with people's representation? So there's lots of intricacy of, about the, how the neural net maps the questions and reason and maps right. to the final. But uh, that details might not be interesting to end user. Sort of like when you and I, we speak, I don't know everything that goes on inside the neurons of your brain, like you don't know, but we have a shared language. And that discrete representation allows us to have a shared understanding. Yeah. Maybe another way to put it, the problem that you're trying to solve is that the machine is going to spit out SQL that the user didn't write. And so the user may have some difficulty understanding what's actually happening. If you can explain to the user what the SQL is doing, Mm -hmm. they can more easily determine if it's what they expected or what they need. And it doesn't really matter what the network did to... That's not the explainability problem that you're trying to solve. You're just right. trying to explain the, the end result. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah the, the immediate result, not really the end result. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. Okay. And you mentioned some other challenges that you're looking forward to solving? Uh, yeah, so um, in terms of how to um, just... Uh, so, so, so there's uh, some problems that uh, in the field that people identify like the cross-domain generalization. So this spider benchmark looks at uh, cross-domain generalization already, but it turns out when you are, if you try to generalize to a different data set that are collected different under a different policy, like uh, for data collection, mm-hmm. the accuracy drop is is pretty big, as we all expect from machine learning systems. Yeah. So how to make the model more robust, not uh, just uh, across domain, across the database that are, you know, sort of more or less collect under the same data collection protocol, but to things that are very 
different in the wild, that's still a big open problem. Mm -hmm. Possibly relating back to the data augmentation problem as well, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's definitely a big part of it. Awesome, awesome. Well, Yenshui, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit about what you've been working on. It's very cool stuff. Thank you very much, Sam. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.